Let's bow our heads together and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again, as we often say, for gathering us together today that we can sing your praise, hear your word read aloud, and to consider how we can encourage one another to love and good deeds, even as we use the word to teach and instruct and encourage one another. As your word goes forth this morning, I pray they would go forth with clarity and with power, that it would do its work in our hearts today as individual Christians and as a corporate body, that we would turn our hearts to you in faith and love and in obedient service, that we may be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom, that Christ may be glorified and that he may be all in all. Be with us, Lord, and give us wisdom to understand your word. In Jesus' name. Right, guys, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me. Colossians chapter 4 should wrap up our time in the book of Colossians, where we found some really timely and clear application for our life in Christ, especially in the last several weeks. To draw your attention to chapter 4, like I said, we'll probably close out our, our time in Colossians uh, today and then move on to some other things. But our, cha- our uh, chapter, of course, is 4. The passage is verses 5 and 6. So please follow along as I read Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So we come to our section of the text. We really started back in Colossians 3, somewhere near the middle. And what we are doing is we are describing the new man. We are understanding, of course, very clearly that when the gospel comes to bear upon the life of a former unbeliever, that there is resurrection power involved. That when we come to Christ in faith, we are no longer who we once were. We are a new man, a new man in Christ. And corporately, we are one new man, the church in Christ. And so, with that newness, there is going to come new characteristics. When Christ makes us new, He does not compartmentalize it. We have to understand that all things are made new. Even Christ Himself says, Behold, I am making all things new. That includes the man. Once we are in Him, we find this lifelong transformation has begun until we are completely conformed to the image of Christ. And I would say, even imagining what that is like in its fullness is nearly impossible to put into words this side of eternity, and yet we know that it is a promise from God in Christ to us. And we see the Holy Spirit working that process out even now. We are becoming like Christ. And we've seen how it affects the various things. First of all, we saw how it affects the character on through the end of chapter 3, and then we went to prayer. We called that in verse 2 of chapter 4, the commitment. If we have a new character, then what is our commitment? Our commitment is communion with God. We pray, we pray often. We pray regularly. It is a pattern of life. And so today we come to what we call the communication of the new man. And we are saying here, what Paul is saying, in fact, is that Christ in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, lends itself 
to a transformation of the very way we communicate. And I don't just say the way we speak, because there is more to communication than simply talking, even though when we think of communication, it is typically talking. And communication understood most simply is to say that there is a sender, there is a message sent, and then there is a message received. So communication involves two people. There has to be two people involved, two parties involved for there to be communication. And so we find that this is impacted, this communication of the new man is impacted by the reigning presence of Jesus Christ and the continual ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when I was reading this text, I was thinking about uh, days, now it's like two decades ago, it's amazing how time flies, but um, when I was in college, I was one of those people who went to college and for the first year and a half, two years, had no idea uh, what I wanted to major in. I think I changed my major about six or seven times in the course of about a year and a half. But, but I went to that major where other people go where they really don't know what to major in. But here we are, we're borrowing money, we're just squandering it on this education. We don't really have a lot of plans of what's going to happen when we get out of college. But I went to the communication department. Oh, what are you studying, Jonathan? Uh, <clears throat> communication. That's where we go. That's what happens when you don't know what to do. Although, when you start studying it, you realize the depth and breadth of what communication actually means. It's not just interpersonal. And there was a class for that, interpersonal communication. How to talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, like relationship building. You have mass communication, such as radio and television, when you want to send a message to a multiplicity of receivers. You even have theater. I took, an, I took an acting class. Got up there on stage, tried to get rid of my stage fright in the meantime. That's the, one of the only reasons I can come up here and, and do this today. Kind of had to work that out at some point or another. But you, you communicate through, through drama, through acting, through taking on a character not your own. Communication also involved what was called rhetorical theory. Learning how to speak with eloquence. Learning how to use persuasive words. Even if what you were saying was total incoherent nonsense, the idea was to get someone to see something your way, to convince them to your side. So many things, suffice it to say, go into communication, many varieties, many varieties of communication. I think Paul understands that here. Words included, but not merely words, also including the way we live our lives. And so Paul in this text is going to make an important shift. Now, we began in chapter 3 talking about primarily the one another's. We started that in verse 12, as those who have been chosen, holy, or chosen of God, holy and beloved. And he goes on to tell us, tell Christians, how we are to treat one another. So this is in-house behavior primarily. We treat Outsiders, of course, with kindness, humility, compassion, and gentleness. But this begins on the inside. If we can't treat our fellow brothers and sisters with all those things, then how are we going to treat those who are hostile toward the gospel with the same spirit of love and goodness? And then, of course, we take that communication to how we communicate to God. First, it's man to man, and now it's man to God. We talked about prayer, praying to God. And then we make one more shift in this book, and that is how we communicate toward outsiders. So if you look at the text, Paul says 
this in verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. And I think the most obvious interpretation of that, referring to outsiders, is simply unbelievers. We have a responsibility to treat unbelievers in a particular way. Our testimony, our witness, does not quit once we leave the assembly. We are Christians wherever we go. We keep saying that, repeating this mantra, all of Christ for all of life. So everywhere we go, especially in our social life, we want Christ to be exalted. We want Him to be glorified. We want His goodness and grace to be made manifest in every context of life. And that includes outsiders. That includes those who do not believe the gospel, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not yet bowed to Him as King and as Lord and as Savior. And so what is our obligation then? It is wisdom. And before we go any further, I just want to break this text down very simply, not so much a fancy outline, but just so we understand the building blocks of this text and how the communication of the new man works. The first is that the communication of the new man is a testimony. Very simply put, it's our communication is a testimony. Secondly, is our communication is an investment. Thirdly, our communication is grace. It's gracious. There is a, a mode in which our communication operates. Fourthly, our communication is security. It reveals a certain security that we have in our walk with Christ and in our correspondence with outsiders, with those who do not know God. So the first one is that it is a testimony. In verse 5 it says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. So what is the testimony? Where is the testimony found? It's found in behaving wisely. It's found as Christians acting in wisdom toward those. Now, let me say this. We are to act wisely everywhere. We have already established that when we admonish and teach one another with all wisdom. So wisdom is not, does not come with an on and off button. We are always to behave wisely before one another and before unbelievers to make a habit of it. So we conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. It is a, it is a way of life. This is especially important considering that in the last few years, I think, very truly, we have experienced and are experiencing an increasingly hostile response to Christianity. Now, that in no way means that everything is getting irredeemably worse. But what I'm saying is where that hostility is, where that unbelief is, it is a very firm and hostile and dedicated kind of unbelief. Unbelieving society sees us as, and properly so, as fools. We, we, we are preaching the foolishness of the cross. We are seen as uneducated, unstudied, unsophisticated, and in the absolute worst of cases, the scum of the earth who just need to go away, who need to keep our religion private to ourselves and not, as, the, as is often said, cram it down other people's throats. Now, we could go down that rabbit trail and explore all the inconsistencies of such an asinine statement, but we will stick to the text. Now, instead of buckling under the pressure, all the more should we demonstrate wisdom toward outsiders. And we say this especially because as hostility toward the gospel grows, the differences in philosophy, in, world, in, in our respective worldviews between the Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview will be more clearly fleshed out. Those differences will be more clearly seen. And we want those differences to be made manifest. We want, we want to see those differences clearly. 
I think that makes the wisdom that we project as living lives under the Lordship of Christ all the more clear. We don't want to hold ourselves up somewhere. Not only do we not want to compromise, but we don't want to be some kind of spiritual troglodytes who hide out, ashamed of the Gospel, and only interact with people on the Lord's Day. No, we're social creatures. We're called to interact, and that means interacting with unbelievers. And to interact with outsiders, you have to do the unthinkable and go outside. So let me encourage you with that. But wisdom. It is the, it, wisdom is, is our testimony. We, te- we give testimony to a wise life in Christ. And so what I want to do here is really unpack this. What does it mean to show wisdom? How does this look? What are some applications we can demonstrate here clearly? Well, let's define wisdom first. We've defined it before, but it's one of those key words. Wisdom, and I'll just hijack Tim Challey's definition. Wisdom could be understood as a way of looking at reality that enables one to pursue what is good in life. Right? It presupposes a worldview. And without that worldview, we can't say it's actual wisdom. But wisdom is a way of looking at reality that enables me to pursue what is good in life. Of course, good, good with the Word of God as its standard. Not, not good as some nebulous, unknown thing that works for me off and on. No, good as God understands what is good. Wise as God understands what is wise. And so here is how I think this really can be fleshed out. And I want you to write some of these things down. I think that they will be helpful. How does wisdom manifest itself? Well, in a very basic way, if it enables me to pursue what is good in life, then it does follow from the fact that if I am showing wisdom, I demonstrate that I know the difference between what is good and what is not good. And in knowing the good, I continue to pursue that good. As opposed, now get this, I pursue what is good as opposed to what is evil, what is wicked. There is no neutrality in life. You either are for Jesus Christ or you are against Jesus Christ. And so we demonstrate knowledge of that goodness. And how that helps us is that as, as, as long as we pursue the good, we resist falling into temptation, especially the temptation that is due to public pressure and censure. Stop naming the name of Christ or else. Stop speaking forth that bigoted speech or else. I think so much of why people are walking away from Christianity is simply that. It's due to public pressure and censure. It's as if it's communicated, and quite unfairly, and I think unclearly, that somehow no one believes in Christianity anymore. It's old hat. We are living in a new progressive era. We, humanity has progressed beyond that. No one believes that anymore. Neither should you. And of course, that's where we hit a snag often. And it has been uh, very revealing, I think, especially in today's society as to who is really standing on the solid rock of Christ and who is standing on the sinking sand of the public court of opinion. is whether or not we continue pursuing what God's Word says is good and resisting what is not good. So I think following along that is wisdom will also manifest itself toward outsiders in the sense that we refuse to be shamed into silence or retreat. Wisdom means pursuing the good in that sense. That we are 
unashamed of the gospel. We are unashamed of the truth. And to be unashamed means we continue to speak it forward. It means we continue to proclaim it from the housetops or the corner of the street or even in our own household. Parents, don't let your kids silence you either. Continue to speak forth the wisdom of the Word and do not be ashamed of it. And I think out of those two things comes this. To have wisdom, to show wisdom toward outsiders, is also to show and to demonstrate very very clearly how trusting in Christ and living in obedience to Him in the power of the Holy Spirit bears all the fruits of love and goodness and is able to, now, now, now mark this, is able to, burst, to persevere through trial. It is one thing to be able to show love and goodness when, when your feet aren't held to the fire, but to continue to, to bear fruit, to richly bear fruit as you walk with God in the face of trial is to really demonstrate a pure form of wisdom. A wisdom that is continually pursued and does not buckle under trial. We are even told in James, blessed is the man who perseveres through trial. And how about in the various stations of life where we see the fruits of love and goodness manifest themselves? Think about your marriage. We show ourselves, or actually we show the gospel, the word of God, to be wise. If our marriage is joyful and harmonious, if our marriages are living in, are lived out in accordance with God's prescription for marriage, we dwell together, as you dwell together, as man and wife, and your home is in order, joyful, and you together are walking with the Lord. And how about raising of your children? If an outsider looked into your home and saw nothing but chaos, and saw nothing but disobedient children, if the husband and wife are always bickering and taking cheap shots at each other, how is that any different from worldly wisdom on display? But when wisdom from the Word of God is on display, and I'm going to just say this, yes, your children will be obedient. If the Word of God is dwelling richly within your home, your children will be obedient. They will demonstrate love toward you. Your house will be in order. That demonstrates wisdom. And only an insane person would love chaos and gravitate toward it just for spite against the work of the Gospel. But that is how wisdom is shown toward the outsider. Look at my home. Look at my marriage. Look at how the Word of Christ dwells richly within it and transforms it from the inside out. That's the wisdom we're demonstrating. How about our work? We demonstrate the wisdom of the cross when our work is productive. When our work is done with excellence. When we, I'll say it, show up on time. When we go the extra mile, even when we're able to work smarter and not harder, when we're able to use the wisdom that God has given us and even solve problems that perhaps others cannot, when we are strengthened by God to do a task and to do it well to His glory, that is something that definitely sets Christian work apart. That we are able to say, in no uncertain terms, we work for God. I work, Hire me because I work like I am working for God. I work for a power and authority that is beyond human comprehension. And that spurs me on to do good work and to complete it well. Here's another way wisdom can show itself. How about in the very building of our own community? First, starting with the community of the church. That goodness and grace prevails here and manifests itself as we 
do work for the benefit of our own community, right? When we seek the welfare of the city, as the prophet tells us. And when we do this, we show them that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only growing, but that it is also unstoppable. That it is not going anywhere. And yet, it will bring forth justice, righteousness, mercy, grace, all the benefits commensurate with believing the gospel. You know, we go back to chapter 3. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. We've talked about the dreadful fact that forgiveness is com- nearly completely absent when it comes to the outside culture. There's no real forgiveness, then there's no real salvation. You're always earning, you're always progressing, but you're never quite arriving. And it is the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will bring in those things in their beautiful fullness. And so when we conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, we are showing them the fruitful blessings that are consistent with life under the Lordship of Christ. And that Lordship is to be manifested everywhere. I think James 3 once again sums this up well. Starting at verse 13, he says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? It's a good question. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So he's demonstrating to us what this wisdom looks like. And then he's explaining its opposite. He says, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And then he says, verse 15, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. So the church of Jesus Christ best not be peddling a wisdom like this. And yet I think we unwittingly do so every time we accept the terms of worldly wisdom. Every time we cowardly buckle and bring their wisdom into our thinking. But James is very clear. He says it is earthly. It's of this fallen realm. It is of that which is passing away. It's natural rather than supernatural. It's earthly rather than heavenly. It's demonic rather than of Jesus Christ. And then look what he says. Look at the conclusion, especially in comparing it with how we've just described this Christ-like manifestation of wisdom. He says this, verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There is disorder and every evil thing. You know what we call that? Chaos. Where the wisdom of Christ is absent, we will have chaos. But then he says, but the wisdom from above. Here's the contrast. Is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. That is the wisdom of a heavenly kind. That is the wisdom found only in Christ. That is the wisdom with which we conduct ourselves to the outside, unbelieving world. And then he concludes in verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Who are we as Christians to be? We are the peacemakers. We are to proclaim faithfully the peace that Christ brings. We are to be agents of shalom. We are ambassadors of the new heavens and new earth that Christ, through the preaching of His Gospel, is bringing upon this world. 
And we are agents of that peace. And what happens very practically is that when we conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, we are showing the entire world how it is supposed to be. We're showing them the way it is. This is the way of goodness. This is the way of peace. This is ultimately the way of Christ and His kingdom. And there's nothing about that that should cause us to be ashamed or to be bashful. We claim, we proclaim that wisdom with boldness. We proclaim it with confidence and we proclaim it with faith that Christ is going to do everything that He has designed to do with this world. That is, restore and exalt it. And so we are blessed as we continue to proclaim that message faithfully and with grace. Not to run headlong into other pursuits, foolish pursuits, as even Paul describes to Timothy. One foolish pursuit, one unwise pursuit is this pursuit of money. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. That is descriptive of the man who looks at wealth apart from the governance of Christ without wisdom. And this really begins in the heart. Where does this lack of wisdom begin? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, that's where the chaos begins. In the human heart. Once you say, there is no God, everything else is up for grabs. And yet, its end is death. Though the way seems right at first. It rejects God, so it rejects His wisdom and it rejects His peace. It rejects the transforming newness that He brings in the Holy Spirit and through the Gospel. But the wise man says in his heart, there is a God. It is the true and living God of the Bible. And His Son is Jesus Christ who is Lord and King. That is the beginning of wisdom. We also are warned in Mark 4.19 against other foolish thinking. And this pertains to the Gospel going forward and how the human heart responds to it. Where Jesus warns that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the Word. There's wealth again. And we're not saying that pursuing and building wealth is a bad thing. It's a great catalyst for being a blessing to others. I've encouraged many of you in here to to start businesses, to build wealth, and to be a blessing to others, and to be a blessing to your community. But if that is your sole preoccupation, you are going to run headlong into damnation. And, And the Word of Christ and all the eternal riches that come with it are going to be lost in the haze of greed and of pride. That is not wise. That is descriptive of the fool who does not see the redemptive nature of Christ. Don't be worried about this life. Don't be deceived by wealth. Pursue rather the riches of wisdom. And we know from Scripture that when it comes to wisdom, even if we lack it, even if we find ourselves as fools, we ask God for it. Going back to James, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Let him ask of God who gives it generously. He's going to give you exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think. His wisdom will be more sufficient, more than sufficient for the task at hand. Ask Him for it. He will give it generously and without finding fault. You could spend so much time talking about the generosity and goodness of God, and yet one way we find that he is, where He is especially good is when He gives us wisdom to discern and so to continue walking. And then it says this, and here's where we come to our investment. 
It's not only a testimony of the work of the transforming work of Christ in our lives, but it is an investment we make. It says this, making the most of every opportunity. Now, this is not the only place in Scripture where we read this, but we are called to live redemptively. We are called to make an investment, yes, in this world. But that when we conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, there is an opportunity being made manifest. And so what does is, what is Paul say to the Colossians? He says, make the absolute best of this. Make the most of this. This word, making the most of something, means to buy out. Right? While everyone else is selling out, we're buying out. We are invested. We are committed. It's a great lesson to learn from this because we do understand that in this buying out, our con- the way we conduct ourselves is all often going to come at personal cost. Now, there's going to be some differences there. The cost is going to be different living in the United States of America, where we're all just Christians, and North Korea. We understand that there's going to be different costs involved. But mark this, there will be costs involved. And I think for being a believer in America for a time, we, we, we will see definitely an increasing cost of being faithful believers, of conducting ourselves with this heavenly wisdom. But we make the most of every opportunity. We see even our interactions, our communication with outsiders as a personal investment where we are able to even pour ourselves into, into them by bringing the gospel to bear, to making the truth proclaimed with clarity and with unction. This idea of buying out is also reflected in Galatians 3.13 where it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did He do it? By paying the highest price possible with His own life. Christ bought us out. He bought for Himself a people. We are His people as Christians. And that idea, that very truth, is also echoed in 1 Corinthians 6.20, where we were bought with the price. Our body is not our own. Our body is not evil, so we can't just do with it all that we please. No, we were bought with the price. That under the provisions of the crucifixion and resurrection and the blessings of the new covenant is the resurrection of this body. So it matters what we do with it. It matters that we conduct ourselves with wisdom while we dwell in this body. Paul also warns the Ephesians 5.15. He says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Why? What's his reasoning? Because the days were evil. The first century church was enduring a lot of evil, a lot of temptation. And we still have evil days. We also see much good in these days as we see Christ doing His work in our lives and growing His kingdom. But we do understand that we continue to contend against evil in our own day. But we don't want to squander the time. We don't want to be those who when we stand before Christ, we are found out as those who squandered our talents. We received a talent and then we buried it. Because we knew the Lord to be a hard man. And yet that's no ex- it's a warning against wasting time. Against living foolishly. Against seeing all that's going on in our society and then just putting our heads in the sand like a bunch of ostriches who don't know up from down. But one thing is sure, our opportunities are limited. Sometimes we will be presented with opportunities to make Christ known and we will completely 
reject those opportunities, whether through cowardice, confusion, simply not knowing that, hey, here's an opportunity. We end up missing that opportunity, and sometimes those opportunities are once in a lifetime. They, they come at one time, and then they're gone. It is Psalm 90, verse 2, that says this, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. See, we have these things in life. We, we use this word often called priorities. We have priorities. You reason, you know, you understand the reason, the only reason we, we use those word priorities is because we have this other thing called time. We have limited time. If we had unlimited time, I don't even think that word would be in our vocabulary. Priorities wouldn't matter. Why? Because we have all the time we need. But there is a pressure that we understand in living the Christian life. And that is due to time limitations. And so we have priorities. We understand that time is limited. And we number our days because we don't know when the Lord will take us. We don't know when we're going to die. And so that is, I would say, an impetus to live our lives wisely and to take advantage of these opportunities. We do not want to be like the virgins that Jesus describes in Matthew 25 and be caught without our lamps lit. Because what happens in verse 10, we see this, while these virgins were going away to make the purchase of oil, because they ran out, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. The virgins did not keep their lamps burning, and so they were cut out. I think, again, it's sort of taking it out of context a little bit, but I think that's how sometimes opportunities are. Paul just got done talking about an open door for the gospel, so we understand our opportunities within that context. Pray for open doors. But as we have said, when those doors open, make sure to walk through them. Don't stand at the threshold, twiddling your thumbs and looking down. Be dressed in readiness, and when the opportunity comes, take advantage of it and perform the work that God empowers you to do. Even Jesus warned His disciples in John 9.4 that night is coming when no man can work. See, even throughout Scripture, there are time crunches. Think of how Lot was. Lot, when Sodom and Gomorrah were about to be destroyed with burning sulfur from heaven. Time was limited. And he did not seem to understand the time crunch involved. So what happened? The angels actually had to drag him out of the city. Got Lot out of Sodom, but then they had to get the Sodom out of Lot. There was, it seemed like there was still a little bit in there that was left in his heart. And they had to drag him out before the city was destroyed. But there is a sense of urgency that we must have, that the church must have, when it comes to making the most of those opportunities and conducting ourselves with wisdom. And if that warning falls on deaf ears for now, let me take you to Revelation 2.5, the first church that Jesus speaks to, the church at Ephesus. And what is His warning? Repent, or I will come and remove your lampstand. He would shut them down if they failed to repent. And I don't think we should look at that and say, well, that was then, this is now. The Lord still wields, and this may come as a surprise to you, ultimate authority in heaven and on earth, and especially His church. And the Lord has every right to shut us down if we are unfaithful. He will remove our lampstand. We don't want to do that. So we want to be dressed in readiness. We want our lamps lit. And we want to make the most of every opportunity. As Paul tells the Romans, to put on the armor of light. To make no provision for the flesh. Where he says here, Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. See, all of these things are inconsistent 
with the new man. And he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. We have been going through many passages lately that talk about readiness, that talk about urgency, that talk about simply being prepared. And this, and this speaks to the very important truth that God has equipped us with everything we need for life, for godliness, for conducting ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Sometimes we're just caught looking the other way. We're caught sleeping while on guard duty. And some of us in the worst circumstances are caught completely naked. We are not dressed in the armor of light. So we want to take advantage of these opportunities. And note this, these are not... I think sometimes we think of opportunities, unfortunately, this needs to be said, where we sort of slip the gospel in. You ever been in, you ever been in situations like that? You're talking with a person, maybe someone you haven't met before, maybe a, an unbelieving co-worker, and they said something... And all you could do was, hey, I slipped in a little gospel. Hey, you should really think about that. Hey, you should. Where we never really actually made clear the actual gospel. Friends, I would say that Christians are not born again for subtlety. That's usually a saying that is um, consistent with men, right? Men don't get it. We have to be talked to in clear, unmistakable language. Not, not with hints. I think that's true for every Christian. We're not born again for subtlety. When you have a door open for an opportunity to make Christ and the glories of His kingdom known, do it. And do it with clear, unmistakable language. I would say that is consistent with wisdom. You want to live wisely? Speak clearly. Leave no mistakes. See, wisdom is not blurry. Wisdom is not unclear. Built within wisdom is clarity. So when we have those opportunities, rather than selling out to the opposition, we buy it out. We buy out these opportunities so that Christ is and His Word and His Gospel are made perfectly clear. That's what it means to make the most of every opportunity. Don't make the least of it. Don't make it halfway. Do everything you can in the power of the Holy Spirit to make Christ known clearly. That's the investment we make, and we want to be faithful with our investments. If, if any of you play the, uh, if any of you play the stock market, if you do trading or you're looking for good companies to invest in, don't come to me for advice. I got nothing. But if you follow it at all, you know how tricky it can be. You know how up and down it can be. One day a company, I've been, it's funny, I've been following a pharmaceutical company. It goes way down, and then it shoots up overnight. And then a couple days ago. There were questions about a drug they were manufacturing. Within one day, it decreased 50% in value. And it just keeps going down. The thing with the Gospel is that it is not tricky like that. The Gospel, when believed, always returns dividends. It always returns blessings. It always makes manifest the goodness of God. We never have to question its worth or value in the marketplace of ideas. Why? Because the Gospel owns that marketplace. And it is always at a premium because it was paid for in blood. And so we never have to wonder about its benefits shown toward us. And so imagine taking that attitude toward outsiders with an unmistakable, with it, with an unmistakable truth of how much benefit is reaped when we believe it. Take it with that attitude. Take it with that heart when you present it. Know that when the Gospel is believed, 
Its benefits are unmistakable. Its benefits are clear. And we do it a grave injustice when we speak of it as anything less. And we were warned about that recently. How we do an injustice to the Gospel when we withhold certain truth. Or when we we fail to clarify all the benefits that it brings. When we fail to clarify that when, when, when we trust in Christ or when we proclaim Him, we are not only proclaiming how to be right with God, we are proclaiming that Jesus, through His death and resurrection, is completely redeeming all of creation. He is undoing the curse of sin as His kingdom is advanced. May we, may we, make, uh, every, when we take every opportunity to make that grace as clear as can be. And then Paul gets into this. He gets into grace itself. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. And then the purpose of that, the security, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. See, when we have the wisdom of Christ, which He so richly gives, when we are out to make the most of every opportunity, two things will present themselves. One, our speech will be seasoned with grace. And secondly, we will have the security to know how we should respond to every person. And we rely completely on the provision that the Lord Himself gives us to that end. And so to prevent ourselves from going over today, I will stop there and I'll present the next two uh, next Lord's Day and we'll be able to really unpack that. Because as we've heard before, what we say is as important as how we say it. And we may know what to say, but we, all, but we want to take careful attention in knowing how grace informs our speech and how we talk to one another. So with that, let's end however abruptly today and take this text to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Father, we thank You again for our time in Your Word. Even though we only get halfway through today, we can still uh, reflect reflect on how we are to conduct ourselves toward outside. It is our desire, Lord, to lead the outsider to You. That as we use wisdom as we see the Gospel impact every area of life, that that would be a witness to those who do not know You. We don't conduct ourselves with wisdom in order to demonstrate pride or to prove ourselves superior, uh, but to point, them to, to point them to all the wisdom that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And we want to be faithful to that end. We don't want to be shy. We don't want to be cowardly. We, we don't want to be unclear. Lord, we want... Your name to be great. We want Your name to be believed upon. And Lord, some of us in here, we do lack wisdom. And whatever way that lack of wisdom manifests itself, it's, it expresses a need that we have for You. It expresses a, a need for humility to come to You and to ask You for that wisdom. Because we know, Father, that wisdom has an effect. Wisdom demonstrates that we desire to pursue what is good and to show the fruits of that goodness. That even as a church, Lord, we can be encouraged by it. That Your Word and all the wisdom it contains does not return void, but that it yields the fruit of righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that we could even provoke the unbeliever to jealousy. That as they see all the chaos that is manifested in unbelief, they would see the peace that we enjoy as we walk with You. And Lord, when that opportunity comes, may we see that investment an investment that we can make the most of, that we can bring forth all the truth and grace necessary to minister to those who are outside 
the camp who do not know you, who resist you, who continue to rebel against you, and yet they cannot resist the aroma we send forth, this aroma of, of truth and life, and that we could take that opportunity to speak the words of truth and life to them clearly and boldly and without hesitation. Lord, may it be spoken without hypocrisy too that we would not be putting on a facade, that we would not have to pretend that Your Word is doing something that it's not, but that the, the work of the Holy Spirit would truly be made manifest in our midst. That we can be a blessing to others, a blessing to our community, a blessing to one another, Lord, and ultimately a blessing to You. That as You call us Your people, that we can conduct ourselves as such. And so as we look forward, Lord, to seeing how grace colors our speech toward one another, that we would even consider this, this week, Lord, how Your grace impacts all of life and how we can speak to one another uh, with grace. So with that, Lord, we commit ourselves today to, your wor- to, to worshiping You, to meditating on Your Word, and to consider how we can continually live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You which is our spiritual act of worship. Bless us, Father, and uh, give us joy as we spend this remaining time with one another. In Jesus' name.